You would please, uh, in your copy of the scriptures, turn to Psalm 19. That's our text for this evening. I'm going to do something a little bit different this evening. We're uh, preaching sermons that are rooted in the, the catechism, that summary uh, of the scriptures that we are committed to, in particular the shorter catechism. And I'm, we're trying to do that in such a way that you understand and that we understand together that we're preaching the scriptures and not the catechism. And that's sometimes a bit uh, confusing. And so here's how we're going to do that this evening. I want to read from the catechism first, and then we're going to read from the scriptures. And honestly, in the sermon, you probably won't hear me reference this catechism question and answer again, and that's okay. Uh, But it does provide for us some uh, foundation and summary of what we're going to find in Psalm 19. So if you remember, uh, short catechism question and answer one gives us the purpose for which we were created, the chief end of man to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Question and answer two explains to us how we can know the way to do that, to glorify and enjoy God. And we are able to know how to do that through the scriptures. And then question and answer three provides for us an outline for the rest of the catechism. Uh, Listen to it, and then I'll explain that briefly. Question three of the Shorter Catechism says, What do the Scriptures principally teach? The answer is that the Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And if you're familiar with the Catechism, or even if you take some time to look at it, you'll see that the rest of the Catechism presents those two parts of the answer in more Fullness. And so what we're to believe concerning God, question and answer 4 through 38, explain to us what we're to believe concerning God, who he is, and what he's done. And then beginning in verse 39, or in question and answer 39, you'll hear what sounds very familiar. What is the duty which God requires of man? The second half of this answer. But our question and answer tonight is that third one. What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God. And what duty God requires of man. And that's at least underneath what we're going to look at in Psalm 19. So let's now turn to the scriptures. This is a psalm of David. But most importantly, this is the word of God to you. Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. 
The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And thus ends the reading of God's perfect word. At the very center of the Christian life is simply to know God. It's at the very heart of what it means to be a child of God. Jesus said in John 17 verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's at the very heart of the Christian faith. And of course, even hearing that kind of proclamation in John 17 verse 3 leads to certain questions, doesn't it? How can I know God? How can a foolish man like me know a wise God? How can a sinful person like me know a perfectly righteous and holy God? How can finite men and women begin to even understand the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God? And the answer is simply this that we can only know God as he makes himself known. And by his grace, he does that in the scriptures. The larger catechism, question one, this should sound familiar to you. It's not quite what you've heard before, but it's familiar. What is the chief and highest end of man? And the chief and highest end of man is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. But then listen to The larger catechism question two, how does it appear that there is a God? Here's what it says. The very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God. But his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. How can you know God? You can know him as he reveals himself in his creation and the works of creation and providence, but you can only know him sufficiently and effectually as he reveals himself unto you in the scriptures for your salvation. And that's what we're going to look at this evening. How can you begin to know God? How can you see the, the glory of God and his majesty in any clear and true way? Well, you see him in his creation as he reveals his glory, but you see him especially as he reveals himself in the scriptures. And that's exactly what we read about in Psalm 19. It's what makes this psalm so beautiful and such an encouragement to the, to the people of God. 
It sings and calls us to sing praises to God because he reveals himself, because he speaks with clarity to us about who he is and what he's done. And he tells you what you need to know about him. And we'll see that in three ways this evening. First of all, the Lord speaks in the skies. Secondly, the Lord speaks in scripture. And then third, the Lord speaks to sinners. So first of all, the Lord speaks in the skies. Notice again what it says in verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Now, of course, as we read this psalm, we understand that all of creation tells of the glory of God. All of creation declares the work of his hands. But in this psalm, it especially points us to the heavens, to the skies, as a place where God reveals his glory. And notice the images and the language uh, that God uses as he speaks through David to tell us that the creation speaks of God. Did you notice all the language of speech? The heavens are telling. The expanse is declaring. Day to day pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. The creation proclaims the glory of God. In fact, we might be able to go so far as to say that the creation preaches about the glory and majesty of God. That's the kind of language that we have in verse 1. The heavens are telling or proclaiming the expanses, declaring the work of God. John Calvin goes so far as to say that in this passage, the heavens are witnesses and preachers of God's glory. And what's the message that they proclaim? Look again at the end of verse 1. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. In other words, they're proclaiming over and over again, God made us. They're pointing us to the creator who made all things. In fact, the creation, even in its most beautiful reflections, is pointing away from itself and pointing to the one who made them. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. They're proclaiming the glory of the one who made all things and sustains all things. Turn over just a few pages to... Psalm 29, we see this in really clear ways in this psalm of praise. It's a psalm that calls us to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. It calls the heavens and all of creation to describe glory to God. But notice how it talks about God's voice speaking through the things that he's made. The voice of the Lord, verse 3, Psalm 29, verse 3. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Just a quick illustration about this. Uh, About a decade ago, I was uh, living in St. Paul, Minnesota as a pastor there. And uh, one particular weekend, a storm came through, not quite a tornado, but 60 mile per hour winds. They ripped trees right out of the ground. Massive trees that were laying all over the ground. And as we drove to church, we drove right through a park and you saw these massive, beautiful trees all destroyed. 
And in God's providence, that same Sunday, a few days before that storm, I'd picked this psalm for us to sing. And as you're sitting there thinking about the destruction that's happened and how sad it was to see those trees on the ground, then you sang Psalm 29 as you came into worship and said, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. He's majestic and glorious. He goes on to describe the voice of the Lord as hewing out flames of fire, the voice of the Lord shaking the wilderness, the voice of the Lord making the deer to give birth. It strips the forest bare, and in his temple, hear this, everything, all of creation says glory. The creation proclaims, it declares the glory of God. And notice as well in Psalm 19, the extent to which the creation communicates about the glory of God. It's first of all an abundant communication. It says in verse 2, day to day pours forth speech. The image is of a a gush of water, a waterfall if you will. The, The creation pours forth and gushes forth the glory of God. It's an abundant communication of God's Glory, But it's also an unceasing proclamation of the glory of God. Again, notice verse 2, day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, the creation never stops proclaiming the glory of God. It's always displaying his majesty. But it's also universal communication. Notice what it says in verse 3. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Actually, in the English Standard Version, it says there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. I think that's a a fair representation of what the text says. In other words, for the creation, there's no language barrier. The creation communicates the glory of God in every language that the world has ever known. It goes on to say, that their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. And in other words, there's no geographic boundaries to the communication of the creation. There's no ethnic boundaries. The creation cries out in every language and in every nation, the glory of God. The skies declare, they proclaim his glory. So that God, by his creation and by his works of providence, shows himself to be glorious. That's why Paul says in Romans 1, verses 19 and 20, that we're without excuse. God reveals his glory in such a way that everyone who sees the creation, all men and women, should bow their knee to God. And then as David in Psalm 19 brings this piece of his argument to a close, he chooses one particular example, the Son. It's not by accident that he picks the sun. This is probably the piece of creation that the world has falsely worshipped more than any other. He describes the sun as a bridegroom coming out of its chamber. Verse 5, it rejoices as a strong man to run its course. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from his heat. And what he's telling us is the sun is glorious, yes, but it's not ultimate. It points us, like every other piece of the creation, to the one who made it and says he is glorious. 
All of creation is screaming and singing and crying out and declaring the glory of God. So that elsewhere in the Psalms, we're told that it's only the fool who says there is no God. Because all of creation declares his praise. Now, these first verses of Psalm 19 are certainly a call to the unbeliever as they look upon the beauty of God's creation to see it rightly as a reflection of and a pointer to the one true God, that they would look up to him and that they would worship him because he's worthy to receive their praise. But it's also a call to the believer to look and to study and to understand and to read the creation in such a way that all we can do in response is say, praise be to God. So that when we see a rainbow, we're reminded that God always keeps his promises. That when we see the the sun and its regular pattern, its setting and its rising are so set by God in such a way that we can know each day exactly the time when it rises and when it sets. Because God is faithful. That when we see the seasons change, as God told Noah and told us through Noah, that we're reminded that God always keeps his promises. The Lord speaks clearly and he speaks loudly of his glory in the creation and in the skies. But we also see in this text that the Lord speaks in the scriptures. There's a transition that happens in verse 7. It says there, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It's not only the creation that tells us about God, but it's God himself in the scriptures. And in fact, in the scriptures, he speaks to us with an authority and with a power that the creation does not possess. The creation cannot restore the soul. But God, working in and through his word, can do exactly that. There's a subtle transition that happens in verse 7. We'll see it kind of laid out in structure But it's clear that there's something unique and different about how the Lord speaks in the scriptures. If I was writing this verse, and I wasn't, thankfully, but if I was writing, I might say it in this way. The heavens declare the glory of God, but the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. And that's, in essence, what's happening in this passage. There's some, some changes that are pretty significant that begin in verse 7. First of all, notice how God is addressed in verse 7, the law of the Lord. In verses 1 through 6, he's named once as God, Elohim, the creator and sustainer, who's powerful in all that he does. But beginning in verse 7, we have this repetition over and over again of the Lord. And notice, in most of your copies of the scripture, Lord is in all capital letters. This is the covenant name for God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who makes promises and always keeps them. And now he speaks to us by his word. He's reminding us of the personal nature of God who communicates to us by his word, not in some general and impersonal way, but in a special and personal way, as he speaks to his people. 
Our confession describes it in this way. I think it's beautiful if we understand it, that the Lord condescends. That the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God speaks to us in ways that we, finite human beings, can understand. And in the scriptures, he gives us everything necessary for life and godliness in words that we can understand. The Lord speaks to us, his people. But then notice the rhythm of the verses that begin in verse 7. We have the six times where it mentions the Lord in all capital letters, the covenant God who always keeps his promises. And then six times we have synonyms for the scriptures, the law of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. Six synonyms for the word of God that are followed by six adjectives that highlight something of the character of the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect. It lacks nothing. It's exactly what we need. The law of the Lord is sure. We can have confidence in it because it's the very word of God. The precepts of the Lord are right. They're righteous and true and just. The commandments of the Lord are pure, perfectly pure, because they come from a holy God. The fear of the Lord is it's clean. It's what purifies us. It's the perfect word of God that speaks to us in exactly the way that God needs to speak to us. And the judgments of the Lord are true. We can have great confidence in the word of God. But then lastly, notice that not only do we have synonyms for the word of God and adjectives that highlight something of the character of God's word, but then he tells us how the word of God functions and works in the life of those who hear and believe it. Verse 7, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. It's by God speaking in and through his word with the Holy Spirit active in the word that he revives and brings lives to otherwise dead souls. He gives us spiritual life through the living word of God. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise The simple, the scriptures are not just a catalog of information to fill our brains, but by reading and studying and the application of the scriptures by the Holy Spirit, we're able to understand and to believe and to respond to what he says with wisdom from above, because the word is from above. The precepts of the Lord, verse 8, are right, rejoicing the heart. In other words, the scriptures make you Glad as you hear of the glories of God and his kindness to us in his son, it produces joy in the people of God. It goes on to say in verse 8 the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It's God in and through his word who takes blind eyes and makes them able to see, that takes deaf ears and makes them able to hear, that takes hard hearts and makes them soft so that we might know and believe and obey. The word of God. Maybe it's helpful to stop here and think about those first four attributes or functions of the word of God. We talk about the word as one of those means of grace. That's exactly what's being described in verses 7 and 8. It's God speaking through the word who transforms and changes hearts 
and minds. It's for that reason that our larger catechism says that it's only the word of God that's sufficient and effectual unto men for their salvation. Because God works in and through the word to work grace, through grace to work faith and obedience in our hearts and in our lives. He says two more things about the function of the word of God. In verse 9, he says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The creation declares the glory of God, but it fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Psalm 119 describes the word of God as being fixed in the heavens. It never changes. And then again in verse 9, it says, The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. What does it say in the New Testament? That the word of God is useful in training us in righteousness. It's only as we read and study the scriptures that we're able to know what it means to obey God and to keep his commandments. Now, with all of that in mind and all the beautiful ways that God, speaking through David, describes his word, David then responds in the only way that makes sense. He praises God and praises God for his word. Look at verse 10. They being the word, the law, the testimony of the Lord, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. They're sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. They're rich and sweet and worthy of praise. The word of God is all of those things and more. But they also provide a warning. He goes on to say, moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them, there is great reward. The word of God is a light for our path to keep us from evil, but it also offers to us a reward for those who would believe the promises of God and be strengthened to keep his commandments. It promises us uninterrupted, untainted fellowship with God for all those who would believe the promise of the scriptures. And, of course, David knew all of this by experience. He had been changed by the word of God. His soul had been revived and restored. His mind had been enlightened. He heard the words of the prophet Samuel and Nathan as they confront him with the word of God in the midst of his sin. And he is emboldened and enabled to respond in faith that brings joy to his heart, and therefore he knows the word of God to be rich and sweet. And he calls us to see the word of God in the same way. And isn't that a word that we need to hear? Do you see the word of God as rich and sweet, as the most valuable communication that you could ever receive? I wonder if sometimes we're hardened to the gift of the word of God. We're of a generation that has more Bibles than anyone could have ever imagined before the last maybe 50 years. Some of us have 10 or 15 Bibles on our shelves. We have them on our computers and on our tablets and on our phones. But we must never become so familiar with possessing the word of God that we forget the value of having God's word 
to us. We should read it and study it and meditate on it and memorize it. We should read it every day and see it as one of the joys and the best parts of our day to be able to hear the very word of God. Have you seen videos of people in places like China the first time that they hold the word of God in their hands? They're crying out with joy and weeping at the idea of having and holding the very word of God. Indonesian Christians in certain parts of that country have parties. When somebody receives the word of God for the first time, they have a party to celebrate the fact that they're holding the word of God and they're able to hear and to read his words. Let's never grow so familiar with having such access to the word of God that we lose the joy and the expectation of being able to hear God's voice in his word and then respond in faith and obedience because this is the very word of God. So the Lord speaks in the scriptures, but the last thing that we see in the psalm is that the Lord speaks to sinners. You might read verses 1 through 11, this promise in particular, verse 11, that in keeping God's word there is great reward and wonder Is that such a great encouragement to me? Do I keep the word of God in such a way that I can see it as a reward? It seems as if David is responding in some sense in that way in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? David's response in considering the glory of what it means to have the very word of God to him in his hands, able to read and meditate on and understand is to recognize his sin and to cry out to God for mercy. Who can obey it? Is there a reward for me? And can I even discern the errors of my own heart? And of course, if we know the scriptures well, we know the answer in some senses, no one can discern his own errors. In Jeremiah, we're told that the The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? As those who struggle and fight against sin, who know what it means to be ensnared in sin, and who sometimes lack the knowledge and awareness to fight the sin that's in our own lives, we need the promise that we find at the end of Psalm 19. A promise that God, in his word, speaks to sinners in such a way that we can have hope and joy, and confidence that produces in us belief and obedience. Because it's only God speaking through his word who provides an answer to sinners. Before we see that worked out in Psalm 19, maybe if you would, turn over to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4. I just want to read briefly two verses, Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. Over the years, my parents have given me a couple copies of the scriptures and each copy they've given me in the front they write Hebrews 4 verses 12 through 13 and as I read those verses they're both comforting and alarming but hear what it says there the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. 
comforting and terrifying, right? The word of God divides things that nothing else can divide because God is powerfully at work in his word. The word of God exposes sin and rebellion, even those secret sins that David is wrestling through, those hidden faults that David is concerned about. The word shines the holiness and the righteousness of God into our holy, unholy and unrighteous hearts, and it reveals the rebellion that it's the very, that's at the very core of our being. It exposes errors and hidden faults. Notice again what it says in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. I think sometimes when we read that verse, we think of hidden faults as, first of all, faults. They're just mistakes. And they're so small that they're hard to see. I don't think that's what David's reflecting on. It seems as if what he's saying is that they're hidden, not because the sins are so small or so insignificant, but they're hidden because they're so characteristic of who we are and what we've become that we forget that they're such violent rebellion and lawlessness before a holy and a righteous God. They're so much a part of who we we are that we've forgotten sometimes that they're even sins. And the word of God shines a light that exposes the sins of our thoughts and our meditations and our words and our actions. He goes on to describe those presumptuous sins that he needs to be kept back from, that open rebellion, the shaking of the fist against God, where we know it's a sin, but we no longer care. And notice as he describes that kind of presumptuous sin, he describes it as the kind of thing that can have dominion over us. It can rule us and it can destroy us. And into that, David looks to God speaking in and through his word to expose his sinful rebellion and to remind him and to point him and to draw him to the two things that he so desperately needs. He needs, first of all, a savior. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. He needs to be made clean by God, who's the only one who can make him clean. He needs to be saved by the power of God. He needs a savior because he can never save himself. But he also needs a sanctifier. It says in verse 13, Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Keep me back from those sins that would so easily entangle. I have in mind when I hear that keep back phrase, those so-called baseball brawls where A guy gets hit by a baseball and he acts like he wants to fight, but he quickly finds two teammates and says, you're lucky they're holding me back. We need someone to stand between us and our sin, to keep us back, to protect and to change our hearts so that we would pursue righteousness rather than sin. We need new hearts. We need motivations that are conformed to God's will. We need words and actions that flow from such godly motivations that only come from those who have a changed heart and the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. And it's only then, as those who've been saved and sanctified by the only one who can save us, God himself, that we can go on to have any confidence 
to ask that God would make us acceptable in his sight, that we would know him as our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. And friends, a book can't do that. That's why David ends not with the book, although the book is significant, the scriptures, but he ends with the author, the one who wrote the book and the one who saves sinners. Let the words of my mouth, verse 14, and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He needs the covenant God who made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to all those who follow in their steps, the one who provides a perfect savior for sinners. My rock, my shelter, my stronghold, in whom when the world is shaking around me and the winds of false doctrine and sin are threatening me, that I can stand in him and I will never be shaken. And my redeemer. And isn't that what the word of God communicates to us? It points us to the one true God who makes promises and always keeps them, who is a rock and a stronghold for those who are otherwise shaken and holds before us a perfect Savior who died to pay the penalty for the sins of all those who believe and trust in him, who was raised on the third day so that in him all those who believe and trust in him might be justified and made right with God, and who sent his Holy Spirit to strengthen us and to apply the word of God to our lives in such a way that we would grow more and more holy each and every day as we read and meditate on the word of God. You see, this psalm holds before us the law of the Lord as something perfect and valuable and holy and wonderful. But what makes it so valuable is that it proclaims to us a perfect Savior. It always drives us not simply to the book, but to the one the book proclaims, Jesus Christ, so that we can praise the Lord knowing that he speaks to us in the skies and what he speaks to us in his creation is true, that he speaks to us in the scriptures, and then as we read and meditate on them every day, he transforms us more and more into the image of his son, and that in the scriptures he speaks to sinners like you and me and reveals to us Jesus Christ who is the perfect and only Savior for sinners. So that we can read and study with joy. And we can pray with confidence the prayer that ends this song. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Lord God, you are our rock and our redeemer. We come, Lord, as those in need of a Savior, rejoicing that even in the words of the Scriptures on every page, it proclaims to us that very Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we pray, even this evening, as we've considered your word throughout this day, that you would strengthen us in such a way that we would see your glory, in particular, in the face of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.